Yes. We got episode 33, Lessons from SARS and Approach to Personal Protective Equipment with world expert, Dr. Lori Mazurik. You know what we got to do. Jamming on the one, jamming on the one. Jamming on the one, jamming on the one. <laughs> Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Karamante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Episode 33 already. We are flying. We are flying through this COVID-19 content. I hope you find it useful. If this is a case, spread the word. Let your friends know. Let your colleagues know. Solving Healthcare is here to serve, man. We really want to make sure you guys have reliable, up-to-date COVID-19 material. And so, um, yeah, let's keep trying to change the boogie. So we're going to get right to it, people. This is a bit of a longer episode for those that are really into the PPE element of things. At about the 38-minute mark, we get into the personal protective equipment. But I got to tell you about this conversation with Dr. Lori Mazurik. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. When we first started our conversation, she actually had a PowerPoint presentation ready to go and wanted to do the PowerPoint presentation as part of the podcast. I was like... I'm sorry, yo, that's not how we roll. And we turned out to have such an authentic, wonderful conversation about the lessons she learned uh, from SARS, how that framed how we approach COVID-19 now. We also talked about the lessons she learned from, you know, her interaction with her Chinese colleague, how this could be affecting our COVID management. And then she's a world expert in personal protective equipment. So we, we definitely had got to into some of the nitty gritty regarding how to keep healthcare providers safe. But I love this conversation. And just a little bit more about Lori. She's has over 25 years of experience in critical care transport medicine. She served as a consultant to the Ontario government for management of SARS patients. She was involved in mass trauma planning, disaster preparedness, Ebola readiness. She's all things. And most notably, a world-class expert when it comes to personal protective equipment. So without further ado, Dr. Lori Mazurik. We have Dr. Lori Mazurik on the quadcast. Welcome, Lori. How are you today? I'm good, Quadjo. How are you? I am glorious. I'm, I want to really thank you for taking the time to be on the show today. We have a lot of topics we could cover. And what attracted me to you was your your passion for personal protective equipment, but you've had a vast and you're extremely knowledgeable when it comes to, you know, pandemics and, and dealing with mass casualties and so forth. So there's, there's a wealth of knowledge here. I, I wonder if we could even start with, you know, you, you, you lived through SARS. Like, what was that like? Yeah, SARS 2003, my son was four years old, and it was terrifying. Uh, we were suddenly in the middle of it. Uh, some in February, it's almost like, you know, this outbreak has brought it back so that it feels like it was yesterday. In 2003, in February, I get an email from WHO saying, be aware of this atypical pneumonia coming uh, from returning travelers from Hong Kong or China that may be presenting to your emergency, but they didn't describe exactly what that meant or why it was atypical. And they said to wear an N95. Well, nobody actually knew what an N95 was at that time. So mm. I'm quickly scrambling on internet and I'm calling the Emerge and somehow they knew what an N95 was and managed to get some. And, and a colleague of mine was actually seeing an, an elderly woman from Hong Kong as I was calling in from the emergency department. It turned out she didn't have SARS, but it wasn't long after that that uh, the first case uh, in Toronto was unrecognized. It was a woman, an elderly woman, um, a returning traveler who had SARS and arrested in the cardiac in the cardiac arrest with unprotected providers was the uh, the beginning of the outbreak, um, and then subsequently through her family through hospitals where again it was unrecognized and caused the outbreak. The uh, the 
most difficult part of all of this that uh, during SARS in Toronto at that time, much like now, and you would think things would change, the, the PPE recommendations kept changing. People mm. were still getting uh, SARS despite wearing the PPE, and that became very unsettling for front lines. You didn't know, like, how do you trust people who give you guidance and you're still getting PPE? In fact, in Toronto alone, 43% of the SARS patients were healthcare providers. It was almost wow. double what it was everywhere else in the world, which was something like about 20%. And uh, it was the beginning, I think, where healthcare providers themselves felt, you know, we're getting this advice, but we're still getting sick. There's something wrong here. Somebody's not understanding uh, either the human factors involved in wearing this PPE or understanding that it's not just PPE that is the perfect is part of protection. And I think through internet, uh, a group of us, uh, after a particular case, uh, actually at our hospital, where nine people were infected with SARS from one intubation in the ICU, and they were all wearing the recommended PPE. So after that point, we decided uh, we need to reach out to um, atypical partners in this, which means we reached out actually through to Hong Kong because they uh, were clinicians who spoke English, but they also, many of them spoke Chinese, and they were able to communicate with the Chinese to find out what PPE actually reduced uh, the risk of transmission and beyond PPE, because we were wearing PPE and still catching it, what else did we need to do to protect ourselves? And uh, at that point, which was getting close to the end of the first wave anyways, uh, we uh, recognized the importance of, or the, the highest risk was really intubation. These were the highest viral load carriers. And what was oftentimes happening, people weren't paralyzing them or they weren't intubating them early so that they had apneic reserve. And so we developed the protected code blue, which really the principles are still, uh, have been brought back to life, if you will, with this uh, second mm-hmm. uh, pandemic. That Fortunately, that, pand- that SARS didn't evolve into a pandemic. It would have been incredibly deadly, especially for healthcare providers if it had. Um, and I think uh. Uh, at that left such a, uh, a, I guess, a life-altering sentiment to me. I thought, as many healthcare workers did, that our biggest concern, strangely, wasn't us getting infected, but that we would, in doing something we were to help someone, we would actually bring the disease home to our family, and we would cause them to be sick, and that mm-hmm. they could lose their life, and they were sort of unwilling partners in our desire to help others, and I think that was... Uh, I think uniformly or universally the concern on, on the frontline healthcare provider that we would do that. So we felt the need to take this into our own hands and to own it. And I think since that time, unintendedly, I ended up, you know, being parts of international teams looking at PPE, doing mass casualty simulations and really owning that really, I think, because of my uh, experience during that time and how uh, impactful it was and seeing how, uh, a very frail healthcare system puts us all at risk. And yeah, and so then this happened. So here I am talking wow. to you about it. Wow. I think, you know, SARS was, I was a medical student during SARS in Alberta. And um, any media appearance I've, I've mentioned, I was saying how we've learned from such experiences, but you really were there. You really saw the evolution of how to protect ourselves how rapidly this could, how care can change uh, and and necessarily in a rapid fashion. This would have been so scary. I I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, it it, uh, absolutely was. And I think, you know, because there are professionals like myself who were staff at that time, and you will still find them scattered throughout the healthcare system, even though it was 17 years ago, there's still a lot of us around we react differently to this outbreak. And uh, I think we uh, certainly, I can speak for myself, I can't speak for everybody who was in SARS-2 Southern Street, but I'm sure that they had that kind of almost like an immune boost of adrenaline when they saw it was happening in China and they saw mm-hmm. that it was a SARS virus. I think they were, and myself included, said, we have to take this seriously. You can't just say, don't worry about it. It's coronavirus. It's the common cold. We have, uh, you know, <laughs> seasonal influenza. You know, it's, we got a plan for that. It'll work for this. And more people die from seasonal influenza. The, you know, the sort of the ridiculous nature of, of heads of state and or even heads of public health trying to downplay this because of perhaps overreaction, you know, related to an Ebola case, uh, you know, in the U.S. and the, and the whole, you know, 
society almost goes into a panic, which is, is fueled by uh, media, unfortunately puts us in a precarious position. So when we have real threats like this, and we've already overacted previously, then we try to, we don't know how to react. And uh, I think it was a general mistake, you know, starting with Italy and the, the mayors of, of Milan out in their court places where they have coffee and wine and say, yeah, come on, everybody get out there. Don't, don't, this is nothing to worry about. Socialize. And then you see, you know, a whole city and a community go down uh, mm-hmm. with serious problems and outbreaks. And we can see this pattern moving towards us uh, from China to somehow it's uh, South Korea and those places managed to manage or managed to get things under control very early. But then we come to Europe and where there's a, there's an overt dismissal of the threat. And then you come to Canada where there's a reassurance. And then you come to the U S where there's a, again, a dismissal of the threat. And this puts us at risk. And uh, I, it just seems to me that we need to have better understandings of how our emotions influence our response. And this should have been taken seriously sooner. And, uh, you know, the good thing is it was moving east to west. So we were able to see Europe and Canada watch New York and, and certainly at that point really took it seriously. And without a doubt, the uh, social distancing Uh, now called social distancing plus because you're expected to cover your face has without a doubt made a significant contribution. And the Chinese have been telling this, telling us this since January. It makes you wonder Mm -hmm. had we listened to uh, the healthcare providers or the others that had done this much sooner, would we have had less deaths? It's you know, hindsight's a wonderful, uh, well, maybe not wonderful because you have to experience bad things to get it, but we should all, like my rule number one, like I said, always use someone else's hindsight. And I think had we paid closer attention to what the Chinese had activated sooner, we probably, um, Europe would have been a better state. We were fortunate, mm-hmm. I think, Canada, that by the time it reached New York, we realized, well, we really do have to take this seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And like you said, rule number one, learn Always use someone else's hindsight. <laughs> yeah, always use somebody else's hindsight. And so just to be clear, Lori, you know, if you were the ruler and you got to dictate kind of how people were to handle this crisis, I'm hearing like, you know, obviously it would be nice that we would address things earlier. But, you know, to me, as a non-expert in the field, I almost felt like what we did in Canada was quite at least in Canada, was quite sound. You know, like um, there was obviously some areas that got hit harder than, than others. But, um, you know, like what's your what's your perspective on that? We were lucky. Had it come to us faster, I think we would have been like in Italy in the sense that there were still many, um, you know, officials really trying to downplay the seriousness of this to us. And I think only as the flames got closer to our perimeter, let's say, that uh, we realized that uh, we had to do drastic measures like the social distancing and shutting down things. And maybe we did time it appropriately. Um, But again, if it had come quicker, we could have been in New York, we could have been in Italy. I'm just so glad that we didn't. And when they did do that, the timing of the decisions turned out to be, it seems to have turned out to be fantastic because the, the projections for Ontario not that long ago were quite high. What's going to be interesting is, is now step two, and this is now waters that we haven't really been in, is when you release some of these things that we know have flattened the curve, what will happen? Because we know it's in our community and probably in numbers. It's hard to say because testing is still not widely done, but Perhaps mm-hmm. the numbers are even higher in our communities than when we initiated the social distancing and the closure. So what will happen when we reopen it? I think the second part is what uh, hasn't been done. And I even some time ago, I was in a meeting with Chinese Red Cross. And, and I will have to tell you, any meetings I've been in with the Chinese, uh, the healthcare providers, they've been exceptionally anything you want, anything we know we'll share with you. You know, governments may have different approaches or the different CDCs may have different approaches, but I will say uniformly the frontline healthcare providers, like I feel we are a global entity. We're, mm-hmm. you know, brothers and sisters in arms, like we really are together and, and they were willing to share everything, but they didn't test for immunity. And when you think about it, maybe what we should be doing is testing for immunity to see just how immune our population is. Maybe that would give us a better idea of when to release these restrictions. There's still the concern 
could you catch it again? Has it mutated? Could you, you know, and is the second time around going to be worse? A lot of that, it seems to be not well studied, but it's thought about and maybe there's anecdotal cases. Those are the kinds of things I think we need to learn about. That's not my area of expertise, but from what I know, and you probably know too, from med school, usually once you caught something, you certainly had immunity for a period of time. And uh, it would be interesting to know more about our healthcare workers, not that they're carrying it now, but how many are actually immune. Mm-hmm. That would be very useful information. And we're, we're sort of not there yet. I would love to see that because if they are immune, then that's good for everybody. Yeah, I think that is definitely like, first of all, I couldn't agree more. This is something that we need to put in part of the equation. Second, it sounds like these tests are coming in terms of IgG, IgM, uh, rapid testing, in fact, which I think will be an absolute game changer. You know, knowing that a healthcare provider has been immune and that that would be significant. Third, I've heard from not human testing, but from animal testing, keep this with a grain of salt, that basically if they were exposed to coronavirus, uh, that, you know, the second time around, it was clear that they weren't getting infected again. So, you know, um, similar to other common uh, illnesses, um, it sounds like coronavirus is, or COVID-19 is predictable in that way, at least on the surface. Yeah. And why would it be so different than most other viruses? Uh, So I think it's always good to worry about the worst case scenario, but it's also important to think about the best case scenario is that people are maybe everybody actually was infected and now they're immune and we're all worried about nothing because of the, you know, we don't actually know that denominator and certainly Mm -hmm. testing for immunity, especially starting with healthcare providers would be, uh, I think a really big plus. Huge. Yeah. On Friday, we're April 16th, tomorrow, 17th, I'm interviewing the head, the CEO of uh, Spartan bio bioscience. And they have the, they were the company that's, um, got approved by Health Canada for rapid testing. Obviously, it's not immune testing, but you know, it's just another piece that I think will allow us to integrate into society again. Like knowing that before, like say you need to go to a dental appointment, you get your screen done, you get your results within half an hour, 45 minutes, you know, you're good to go. Yeah, as long as the reliability is a bit better. I was alarmed when I read actually in the New York uh, Times that uh, at least one third of the New York tests were falsely negative. And apparently in the Chinese, it was 40%. So I hope the new new test is even better. (laughs) Yeah, I'll find out tomorrow. I think I I want to know if I'm immune. I was was, tested, it was negative. I, I had all the symptoms and we had been seeing COVID. I would be quite happy if I was immune, but so far I'm just COVID negative. So far, well, you know, there's that's good and bad with good. that. Yeah. That's good, too. Yeah. Rest assured, we're still going to get into the, the PPE talk, but I, you know, I'm just so in, intrigued because you have a lot of perspective. Like, how do you see us getting through this then? Because, like, you know, I, you've had the interactions with, the, you know, the, the your colleagues in, in, in China and so on, and, you know, the nature of, of, of COVID-19, it doesn't sound like it's going away. Like, so... We have the issue of, you know, we're protecting ourselves by doing the social distancing. But part of the theory is that we're just delaying infection rates so that our our healthcare system could deal with what's in front of us, that we don't we manage capacity. So what's your your thoughts on how this plays out? Well, let's say this is SARS Junior. So SARS Senior in two thousand three had a wave two. So mm-hmm. I think a wave two is certainly possible. It's likely, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm perhaps thinking of the worst case scenario. The, the restrictions will get lifted. The economy has to move. You don't want to have, uh, you know, a lot of poverty and other things that can result because people are unemployed and there's only so far, ta- you know, virtually what country isn't in debt, how much further can you go in debt before that has consequences too as well. So I hate to think economics plays a role in this, but it definitely does. So I think the the relieving of these social distancings will occur in the absence of actually having testing to know who's immune, then chances are we will have the asymptomatic spreaders uh, be out there because it won't be gone yet. I don't know if we can hold off as long as the Chinese did. And, and I would, I'm not sure if this is exact, but it's I think they waited six weeks of no cases, except for cases that were uh, returning travelers. 
before mm-hmm. they started to lift the restrictions. I'm not sure. Well, the way Trump is talking is, uh, I, <laughs> he keeps saying a lot of things, but it's more or less like we got to get this economy going. And there's, you know, in the New York state itself, they're talking about we, we're going to get kids back to school before the school year's ended. And then the mayor is saying, are you kidding me? Like, so it's a bit concerning that the, I'm not, maybe the U.S. isn't going to dictate what we do. I'm sure we'll be more conservative, but the principles are, it does highlight the principles of when do you open things back up and what are, what are the potential risks of doing that? And that's where I think the we are going to find out one way or another. Either this virus has widely spread and everybody, many people are asymptomatic and in fact uh, are immune and it won't cause a big problem or we will get another wave and because the numbers are, we may open up ourselves too soon and the, because of the numbers in the community are a lot higher that we'll see, we'll see that surge that we're trying to avoid and the only reason that we might not be able to avoid it is because the numbers are higher so even if you shut down things you'll have spread things uh, much further afield and it will be difficult to contain it because our numbers in the community are are much higher so I think the timing of that is very tricky decisions are going to be made again using the Chinese hindsight Mm -hmm. it's six weeks I'm pretty sure it was six weeks zero cases but that's something that would have to be looked into and they really haven't had uh, a significant spike. So mm-hmm. I don't know if we can wait. I don't even know where six weeks with no cases would take us because we're getting new cases all the time. So yeah. maybe we would never get there. And so the implication of this for countries outside China is really tricky mm-hmm. and uh, be tricky to watch. And did China, do they go back to regular life or did they just kind of come with a gradual approach? Yeah, um, I haven't looked at it that close. I think okay. there's certain things they got back faster than other things. So if you were mm-hmm. essential, like certainly in healthcare, you never really stopped working. And if you were sort of like in the mask making kind of business, so they, they, they basically look at essential services first. And then I think they started to, just in the last couple of weeks, start to allow people to go out in public and, uh, and you know, stores and stores for food and essential things were always open, but things where you could go and maybe have a meal and those types of things are now opening. Are any of the markets that uh, were associated with this outbreak opening? I doubt that because I think Mm. they would be very uncomfortable about that. But at some point they do want to return to normal. And I think they're doing it based on what's essential. And then secondly, maybe what's essential to just the general health of the community to be able to socialize and how to do that now. So Mm Yeah, it's so so complex. Like, because um, I mean, as you know, the numbers here in in Canada and Ontario, like, like uh, I was on I'm on call last two nights ago at uh, Montfort, and you know, our 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 units are empty. The hospital's yeah. empty, and um, you know, the the idea of you know eventually we'll have to re- open things up. You know, it's. It's daunting in the way that you don't want to overwhelm, you don't want to be wrong about it. But at the same time, you do want to be able to not prolong some things. Like for me, what I'm ultra sensitive about is, you know, how many elective procedures are being on hold right now. I get, you know, like people that are like waiting for their hips or their screening cancer evaluation, like it's okay short term, but to to, to not have that addressed long term. Plus, I mean, the economy, like you've touched on already, that has obviously some uh, serious consequences. But even just from the healthcare side, not being able to address those needs right now, I, I, I think is uh, a concern if, it, if it's prolonged. Oh, absolutely. But using, again, the Chinese hindsight, <laughs> I will have to send you that manual and you can share it. But they yeah. made a very clear point. Now, we can't exactly do it the way they did it, but they had non-COVID and COVID care. So they did everything they could to keep the non-COVID care going. Because when you think about it, what was our business before this happened? Uh, we were over capacity with very sick patients who needed procedures all the time. They didn't go away. And mm-hmm. as a base hospital physician uh, and talking to other base hospital physicians, they feel there's a significant increase in, and I, I don't have data to validate, it, but so just their perception, there's a significant increase in the number of patients we're pronouncing at home or in the field. And uh, mm-hmm. not that they could be co- like el- often elderly, and so they could be patients who had COVID but died at home, and or they're patients who 
know they're at risk of severe COVID, know that COVID is at the hospital and are too afraid to come in. So they're dying of their non-COVID disease at home. So one of the things we really need to do is that we need to look at what the Chinese recommended, which is absolutely separating your COVID and non-COVID spaces in your hospital. And there's ways to do that. We can, that's maybe another talk for another time, but you, you don't have staff working on the, the code side doesn't work on the non-code side and you don't have people going back and forth. You keep them separate and they both wear PPE and, uh, and you still treat everybody as a potential COVID patient, but at least if they're on the non-code side, they're going to be asymptomatic and you give them mm-hmm. a mask. They're going to be low viral load, lower viral loads and lower risk. And, uh, you know, you can put your high risk staff because we have high risk staff that they are at risk of getting COVID, severe COVID, put them on there. They'll have lots to do because we had lots to do before COVID. You have the other COVID side uh, run by not just emergency or critical care, but everybody else whose income may have been reduced because of the clinics having closed down and they need work. Um, but we reopen that non-COVID side and we make a public commitment that we are taking every precaution to protect you from COVID. We want you to come back, you know, because you have heart disease and stuff like that. You'll give you a mask. We'll do everything we can do to isolate you, test you, protect you, but come back because, you know, otherwise we're going to have a bigger uh, number of people die from their non-COVID illness because of disrupted care. And I think we forget that and we don't count those as COVID they're not maybe directly caused by COVID, but they're indirectly caused by COVID. Exactly. It should be counted in the death rate. And we're not checking, we're not taking, counting the number of people who die at home or pronounced at home as deaths resulting from this outbreak. So I think we're, that is one mark I think we are missing. We have stopped, you know, initially when you don't know what's going on, you're like, oh my God, uh, you know, you see what's happening in New York, you saw what's happening in Italy, and you think you're going to get that bomb of patients exploding for you. And so I understand that. Now we can see that this has worked. Maybe let's soften the restrictions. Let's make, separate, the, separate the COVID and COVID and convince the public because we are taking proper measures to create that non-COVID space, to do everything we can to protect them in that space because who will be coming to it? It'll be the, you know, the chemo patient, the heart disease patient, the hypertensive diabetic with heart disease. All those people with uh, high-risk diseases will come back to that space and expect to get protected and not get COVID in the hospital. So if we take those measures, clearly separate them, make it publicly known, we're open for business, they'll come back. And I think, and we will probably prevent those people from suffering significant morbidity and mortality due to their non-COVID diseases. And we can't forget them. And right now I feel like we've forgotten them. Man, this is like, my mind is a little bit uh, expanded here because it was a concept that, you know, as you're saying it, obviously it makes a lot of sense, but we, I don't hear much talk about it. Like certainly from a basic perspective, we, you know, at the ICU, we have a COVID side and a non-COVID side to obviously reduce risk of transmission. But the idea of really having non-COVID care amplified and just reassuring the public that we're doing everything we can to protect them, because it's like, it's like I was asking myself, I'm like, where are these patients? How come I'm seeing less stroke? How they're come I'm terrified. seeing less? They're terrified. They're yeah, terrified. They think absolutely. if they come there, they're going to get COVID and go home, be sent home like people are and uh, die at home. Uh, they're terrified. They don't want to be that statistic. And the, the ones who shouldn't be in the emergency department, yeah, they, they, there's all those. What we can do is we can figure out a different way to support them because clearly telemedicine can support people with minor injuries and complaints, but those who really need us, we want them back. And and I think the insertion of telemedicine for screening has been a big step forward to reduce reduce, and should be a long-term investment that we all continue. 100%. These things, uh, they need to be examined now while there's a kind of a calm and they need to be examined now, not as just being COVID strategies. They need to be examined as what the future of healthcare is going to be. It's going to be transformed by self-care. So empowering people to know what to do to look after themselves at home in certain conditions. And when they're not sure, be able to either access an app or a person or go through some sort of tiered uh, healthcare response so that they don't always have to come to the hospital, but they go to the right place to get the service they need. The lessons we're learning now, we're learning, learning because we, we, these things have always been available, but we've been very slow to adopt them. Uh, healthcare is an institutional kind of slow moving kind of thing. And, and 
if it takes a little piece of RNA to wake it up, then maybe we should pay attention because it's, uh, we should listen to the lessons that we're learning now and capture these, these, the positive parts of it to be able to, to take on the battle of the non-COVID disease, which ultimately is the biggest killer in the world. hundred percent. And like, uh, like we can't let this go to waste. You yeah, know, for and sure. I, I, this is like, I mean, this is the whole, I mean, you're new to the show, but this is the whole reason it exists of how slow innovation is captured within healthcare. And uh, like we had a, one of our original shows was on telehealth and virtual consults and clinics and how beneficial it could be for the greater good. But yeah, we cannot let this l- little RNA virus uh, go to waste in terms of lessons for sure. The other part of, uh, I just wanted to touch on what you said earlier too. I hope we we look at the non-COVID deaths, like the deaths related to COVID that weren't people infected to, of, of COVID, because we need to learn about this too. This is not going to be the only pandemic that ha- that happens. This could also... Like if there is a second wave, like knowing that information will will help dictate like next steps, like whether it's, you know, proactive visits at homes for high risk people or like really providing them with a way of doing the virtual uh, clinics or interactions as easy as possible. Like I really hope that we are um, paying attention to this, especially if you're telling me this is something they're seeing abroad, like what's stuff that they saw in China. Yeah. I mean, capturing that data. I mean, you, uh, you know, that uh, I think my husband told me that, you know, he says, Lori, why are you worried about COVID? Of course, I'm ready to hit him when he says that, but uh, (laughs) he says, I've just read that a million people a day die in China. (laughs) And I thought, well, that is interesting, really. So what is it about this that scares us? I think it's because healthy people are also dying and you definitely don't want to lose the healthy people in your world or your family too as well. But it does, it did give me pause to think, you know, these are all relative things. And so why are, why does this piece of RNA get our attention? But at the same time, I don't want to overthink it. And other than to think of this as like a, a nudge to say, listen, either you guys get a hold of your world and transform healthcare or <laughs> one with an even bigger badness is going to come and mm-hmm. take care of the problem. So it's like a warning. It's like you're, uh, you're in STEMI before you're STEMI. It's yeah. just saying, you know what, maybe it's time you uh, get a little bit lighter, a little bit fitter, you know, get things under control. And if we don't, we're going to pay a price, but you know, human nature is what it is. I often talked about SARS 2003. It was like joining wet weight watchers before your wedding. You looked great by the end of it. You knew all about PPE and a year or two later, all those bad habits creeped in. I mm-hmm. like to think that because technology is uh, so much more prevalent and the desire of people to be involved and take a, a ownership of their own health and for frontlines to they feel they need to have better control and be given less directions let's say by people who don't necessarily include them to the extent that they feel they should be included i think all these things are kind of almost like a it's like a perfect storm with mm-hmm. social media maybe fanning the flames but using social media in an effective way to reach consensus rather than overwhelming us with tidbits of information we could use it in a organ, better organized manner. So then rather than mm-hmm. ca- create this cancerous information, we actually create organized cellular, you know, information that is useful. And we've gone from PPE and we really are talking of coffee shop and maybe now we're drinking wine. So we're talking about philosophical things as opposed yeah. to the, you know, I think, I do think that people are people regardless of their geography and culture and whatever. And I think, Events like this of a global nature have a way of bringing us together. What I think, I hope the real long-term benefit of this is that we'll stay together in a unified way that, uh, you know, and what I'm talking about, I'm talking about front lines and people in general. The leaderships at the very highest levels have been, in many instances, less than stellar. But I think the people, the, the crowds in the front lines have been, they have been stellar. And yeah. the public has really pulled together to to deliver what needs to be done. I hope those kinds of uh, of collaboration continue beyond 
uh, the emergency part of this. I hope so too. Another thing you, you'd mentioned that I, I wanted to touch on too, you know, your husband saying, you know, a million people die in China uh, every day. And, you know, the idea that, um, you know, young people are being impacted by this. The one thing that I don't get a sense of, so, you know, in Ottawa, we we're, we we have cases, but the, the cases that we've, for the most part that uh, I've, I've personally seen that have, that have been, uh, that have succumbed to COVID-19 have been patients predictably that would do poorly, like yeah. patients that have multiple comorbidities and, and, I think that's a that's a great thing. That's maybe it's saying. Oh, well, I mean, a great thing, and I don't mean that in the wrong way. What I mean is, I would just be if this was 1918 and and the cytokine storm was the biggest impact. I'd be worried about my my son, and you know, mm-hmm. we'd be worried about the you know everybody under 40. So what this is is at least the younger generation. I hope because they're more or less spared from this, we'll learn from it. I, but, you mm-hmm. know, it makes me wonder, though, if you're not touched by it, how do you learn from it? But, you know, I think I'm going to have to have that conversation with my son and see yeah. what they think. No, I, 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 mean, I think what it comes down to is, like, I, you know, one of the aspects for me was especially, like, am I worried about getting it? I think for the most part, healthcare providers should have the mindset that they're highly likely there's a likely high likelihood that you will contract it based on a continuous uh, sort of exposure depending on where you work exactly exactly but uh for for me it was like you know i had a mother-in-law that was staying with us i have a a immunocompromised nanny um like i you know that that part was the part that was you know or passing along to people within the hospital like that part was that that didn't have any reserve that part was pretty anxiety provoking for me but I mean, everyone's—it's all you know. Everyone has their their concerns. I know a lot of healthcare providers are worried about being that rare case of a young person that succumbs to to COVID nineteen. But um, yeah, it's—I mean, it's extremely interesting. Which, by the way, will segue nicely into <laughs> Lori. Yes. How do we, as hospital staff? protect ourselves so we the, you, once again the theme why we got you on here was because of your expertise in personal protective equipment but um you know it's a big topic but you know in in terms of in general concepts how do us as healthcare providers protect ourselves so i i do think that um you know, when you look at social media and you take a look at what Chinese, the Chinese have uh, been wearing, which is the Tyvek suits and, uh, you know, glasses and face shields, N95s and, and many other things. You know, when this first broke, people thought, wow, I got to I need to have that. Um, they happen to have that. So they were able to use it. But was it needed? I think, you know, as we move sort of uh, out of China to countries that have less resources, it gets difficult to know exactly uh, because we're under crisis conditions. We don't always gather the data of what you're wearing, how long you're in contact with a patient, what was the viral load or the means of exposure, like was it aerosol generated, to know for sure exactly the transmission rates from, say, a patient to a, a healthcare provider. But I will tell you this, that from SARS 2003 and probably this as well, the most common way of transmission is from the asymptomatic transmitter or the unrecognized mm-hmm. COVID. So from that perspective, because if you have COVID in your community, pretty well everybody in the healthcare setting, it's probably actually the safest place you can be it, with a surgical mask, uh, a face shield, or some sort of eye protection, a gown and gloves, if you're seeing these patients, I think is, is adequate protection. And I don't think that we've had trans, you know, again, Getting the transmission rates gets a little bit dicey in your own areas, and it isn't always gathered as well as you should. But I think the the risk of transmission is incredibly low. And if you then go up to an aerosol generating procedure where there is a lot of sort of back and forth, back and forth, what is actually aerosol generating? All the you know many of the studies again done under crisis conditions during SARS and some of the models that are coming out now of variable quality. So it keeps going back and forth. But it, even if you say. Uh, an aerosol generating procedure just requires an N95. We have those. And so I think at once again, we have the protection that we need, that we need to stay safe. The other parts of protection that sometimes people forget though, are really, do you need to be next to that patient? You shouldn't be standing there for very long, like reduce the contact time. 
So reducing time uh, with the patient. So say like if somebody comes into the emergency and, and they're a possible code patient, I just get their cell phone number. They stay in the room. I, to, I talk to them and get absolutely everything I need before I actually go in. So I'm in for about hmm. one or two minutes and then I'm out, but I am not in there taking a history at all. So thinking of simple things to reduce the time you spend with the patient. So measures in addition to PP, time with the patient, a wall between the patient. Uh, negative pressure is, is interesting. People say, well, it's a droplet. So why is negative pressure important? And, and this comes back to, is a cough, does a cough gener- generate aerosols? And they keep saying, no, a cough is not aerosol generating. I'm not so sure that that's quite correct. And, and this could take me into a little bit of hot water. But what, what is the first thing we do in somebody who's suspect COVID? Well, we put a mask on. So if a mask is on somebody who's coughing, yeah, they're not generating aerosols because whatever aerosols were generated are trapped in that mask. So I can, I can buy that. But on the mm-hmm. other hand, if, say, they take off their mask or they are coughing in a room that is negative pressure, fact that if they do generate some aerosols, those can be taken up by the negative pressure and filtered. So it recycles the air and filters it. So negative pressure for really sick patients is a benefit, but not everybody has it. So just then the next part of that is keeping the door closed. Mm-hmm. Other things that, uh, you know, uh, small things that people don't think about that are important is like, where are you going to eat? And when mm-hmm. you take your PPE off, can you socially distance? So in, in China, for example, they set up communal uh, areas for staff to eat. But you went in there, you sat by yourself at a table. They were properly spaced. I think they're two meters apart. And as soon as you left, somebody came and cleaned that table, disinfected it so the next person could sit there. But I know from, uh, you know, from my own institution, we're taking off our PPE. I don't actually go in there because I'm a bit paranoid, but people are taking <laughs> off their PPE as they should before they go sit down, but they're all sitting together. So how do I know that like they're literally sitting together elbow to elbow? How do I know that that is not a good place for some asymptomatic transmission to occur? So I think there's some, I think the PPE recommendations that we have are, are solid. I think that we know too, as well in high risk situations like intubation to do it early, if you're going to do it and to um, paralyze. So I think paralytics is actually the, one of the biggest, uh, like anything to shut down the coughing uh, mm-hmm. is, the, is the way to do it. The other interesting thing, unlike SARS in 2003, where the the highest viral load was thought to be in the sickest patients. There's some suggestion that actually the highest highest viral load is in the early symptomatic phase of COVID, which I find interesting. They don't talk that much about the later ones, but I do find that's mm-hmm. interesting too as well. Regardless, anybody you need to intubate that's that sick, I'm going to treat them as having high viral load and get them, you know, everybody in the proper PTE, reduce the time in, have your huddle before you go in, plan to paralyze as soon as you can, do no bagging um, if you can avoid it. And if you're going to do it, two-handed tight seal and uh, reduce the aerosol generation. And I think when we do those things, I think we're safe. I honestly have not heard, I'm sure it's out there. We've, there have been some deaths. We've had a death, at least one death at our hospital, but the paper, it wasn't a healthcare provider. It was a, somebody who provided, did housekeeping, but they were thought to have contracted it outside the hospital. I don't mm-hmm. really know. It's again, uh, transmission to healthcare providers are always touchy, and it's oh, it's always touchy. Is where did they catch it? Because this is also in the community. But I think we know without a doubt, and I think the number may vary, but at least the risk within the hospital is at least three times as high. And and for right. all I know, it's higher. I guess the only thing that might reduce it is the fact that we do wear PPE, and I think everybody's pretty good about using the PPE properly. So. Mm-hmm. So yeah, because um, the other thing I would add into that, I think you mentioned it, but just to be complete in in the intubating the COVID patient, like the least amount of people in the room as possible, that'd be an, obviously a, another key element to that. So many things are so in terms of the type of mask people are wearing, just from your non aerosolizing procedures, for example. So you got you're in the merger. An emergency nurse uh, seeing somebody for X Y Z problem, whether you think it's COVID or not. Uh, what what's your your viewpoint in terms of what mask people should be wearing? Well, I think you know certainly in Ontario and if not all Canada. If you, I was going to come back a bit. In New York, they said when they had test positive their first COVID case. In retrospect, it had, they probably had hundreds of cases already. 
in their community. Um, so if you have test positive in your community, like, or have a positive test in your community, you can bet that you probably have code in your community. And given that we are in a PPE conservation state, um, although the chances of running out are less now, nobody's taking it for granted. So most, if not all, places are wearing their surgical masks the entire day unless it should get wet um, mm -hmm. or get contaminated. And you actually use less PPE than, say, if you decide to, oh, that person's got a cough, I'm going to wear a mask for that, throw it out. You see a couple other people with asymptomatic, and then, oh, there's another one. So you actually use less PPE that way. So I think pretty well everybody is now for their entire shift at minimum wearing a surgical mask. Many people are also wearing the face shield because the face shield it's, is, gives such great coverage of your face, your eyes, and also protects your mask. So probably helps to make it last longer so you have to chase it, uh, change it less frequently. And now after, I think, a month of sort of resisting the idea that you can clean a face shield, uh, many IPACs have decided you can cavi wipe them and that that was safe too as well. So I think that the combination of a, of a surgical mask and a face shield, I'm a fan of the blue font because when I did uh, glow germ tests where I blew just a little puff of glow germ, which is a fluorescent powder at people in PP, uh, without the blue font, they got it in their hair around the, and in their ears. So with the blue font, they didn't. So I'm a personal fan of that. So I would use a surgical mask uh, plus some eye protection, face shield being better, and a, a blue font. And then you change your gowns and gloves between uh, patients as you as is seen fit. So I think mm -hmm. that would uh, keep you pretty safe and preserves PPE as well. If you're going to do yeah. aerosol generating, then obviously you just upgrade to N95. If it doesn't, get, if you don't feel it's contaminated or not, because uh, sometimes you're putting on your N95 in anticipation of this cardiac arrest that either gets pronounced on the way from EMS or you just somehow don't get involved, then use that N95 for your shift, like rather than um, you know waste it. Although many mm -hmm. hospitals, including our hospital, uh, we are autoclaving, I think. I think it's autoclaving. So we actually collect our N95s in a, in a mask for autoclaving or some sort of sterilizing process that you put your name on. They'll sterilize it. It comes back in the same bag with your name on um, and you can reuse it. But we only would do that if we ran out. But they, so they are uh, doing a reuse measure wow. to extend our uh, PPE availability should we run out. That, and there's, in this, in, there's no question in the States because I am on the American College of Emergency Physician Forums. It's uh, it's very enlightening, let's say, to look at um, what's happening in a much bigger country with a, a much uh, more diverse medical system of haves and haves-nots. And there are people running out, and it's kind of heartbreaking to hear some of those stories. Wow, because like that's that's a complete game changer if you can't protect yourself, like in terms of spreading it within your. Your hospital within your like your family get with for yourself like it's just a that's a whole another level of chaos and despair. I can't even I can't even imagine. Well, you would you know it's funny. I mean, your family's originally from Ghana. I mean, you can only imagine countries that have not and what will they do and uh, and who will supply them. So you adapt, you do things like um, make a face shield and you use a cloth kind of cover of some sort and mm -hmm. you use dish gloves and you use a rain, you adapt, you would adapt. We are in a have country that's only threatened to be reduced to kind of not having these resources, but there are real, there are places in the world who will face being that and they mm -hmm. adapt and it's not, well, the, the challenge is it's never really studied what is the transmission rate to those people who have to manage this system, manage it that way. It would be not a good thing to have to research, but if you could capture the research to see just what is the difference from a MacGyver type of protection compared to fully automated factory made. I mean, I'd certainly like to be on the factory made side of things, that's for sure. 100%. But uh, But there are places that won't have that. And I'm not sure how what we're doing as a as a world to help them. Um, I, you know, I never think of it as my own personal mission to try to change that. But maybe we have to pause and think about that too as well. I don't know how we would help them. That's a massive <laughs> topic. Global global COVID, and I saw an article on um, by uh, in the New England Journal actually by uh, Bill Gates on. How we get, how we need to approach pandemics in 
in third world countries and so forth. Um, and I, you know, it was almost overwhelming to think about what would be needed. But the one thing I would say that's maybe is um, what I like that I'm seeing is that when it comes to this innovation, like we're embracing it. Like certainly at our site, we, we have um, face shields that are 3D produced, 3D printed, and we're washing them, as, as you mentioned, they're reusable. Yeah, I remember, I remember when I mentioned it, and it was like I was a heretic or, you know what I mean? It's like, what yeah. are you talking about? We can't reuse masks. We can't. I said, you've got to look at this. I'm on these forums. These guys are talking about doing intubations without PPE. I don't want to no. be that person. No. So you got to do something. But, you know, that's the other thing I think is the, is I'm not so sure we talk a good, we talk about the culture of safety and I'm just, you know, this is a pet thing of mine about the, the aviation industry that I think it was United Airlines came up with these three, four letters, CUS, C-U-U-S, where they encourage the co-pilot to say, I'm concerned, or anybody on the staff, I'm concerned, I'm uh, uncomfortable, I think this is unsafe, or I'm scared. And if you say that, the pilot is supposed to stop and actually yeah. realize that maybe this hierarchy, you know, peaked or topped by the pilot could take them into a deadly spiral or dangerous thing. And we talk and we try to embrace that in healthcare, but so many times, and you see it like in New York, a a nurse or somebody speaks out about the conditions, they're fired. What is that? You know, and I hear repeatedly people, they're trying to talk about their fears and their concerns and they're sort of dismissed or they're sort of don't talk to others because they worried that others might also raise these concerns and not going to be able to address them. But I do think that's something else that needs to change. People shouldn't get fired for expressing their concerns. People should be feel that if they have a concern or if they have a solution, say like the 3D printing, it shouldn't be dismissed or me raising the idea that you should be able to reuse these face shields shouldn't be dismissed out of hand or, you know, why are these guys doing that? And, and why wouldn't they consider that these are viable ideas early rather than try to say, no, that's not going to happen? Think about even in your career about how many times somebody has expressed concern and it's probably saved a life. Like I, I, can, I can think of a, at least a few incidents where that respiratory therapist or nurse spoke up about something that was odd or they, their, their intuition told them they needed to bring something up. And that awareness changed the course of the patient's care. Like, it's just, you know, that's at a, a lower level, but like, it's, that's exactly it. Like there needs to be that, that uh, level of safety where our team collectively needs to be able to express themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think what I would like to see a shift to is instead of this institutional hierarchy of uh, so-and-so, you can't make a decision without running it up 10 layers or, or getting it approved. And then three years later, what needs to happen happens. But you know, in the meantime, a lot of things bad happen. Is that we should be following the best leader is the best idea. And mm-hmm. that can come from anywhere. And I think that uh, I would love a world that embraces that concept of uh, championing the best idea and following that as opposed to so-and-so is the chief or so-and-so is the head or, you know, that it has to come from them. You'd be surprised where the best ideas come from. Like you said, it's the RT said, Hey, what are you doing? Well, they would probably wouldn't say it that way, right? <laughs> You'd have to know you pretty well to say it that way. But, yeah. you know, I work with paramedics uh, in the field, uh, critical care transport uh, medics that are amazingly intelligent. And I, When they say something, I think, God, I should be the doctor and I should know this. But the truth of the matter is nobody can know everything and you should be always open-minded to what's being said and put yourself almost in that Zen frame so that you can hear what's being said and say, wow, that's a great idea. Yeah, thank you for saying that. And we should be appreciating Mm -hmm. what people are trying to tell us because they're trying to tell it in a way that is sincere and meant to be helpful. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes we forget that. 100%. 100%. So getting back a bit to um, protecting ourselves, walk me through then, you know, you're going into work, you do a shift, it's, it's COVID-19 era, you want to make sure you're, you're safe and, and, and your colleagues are safe. Like, we, maybe we won't talk about like specific errors, like uh, doing an aerosolizing procedure right away, but um, walk me through the steps that you take going into working maybe when when you leave work or when you come home 
Yeah, it's interesting. You know, you really have to think this through, I think, carefully because you could, you know, because we have so much muscle memory of uh, I go to work in my greens, I come home in my greens, that kind of thing, because I have my own greens with my pockets and blah, blah. But uh, I use a vehicle that's only for me. And we, we, we're fortunate enough to have more than one vehicle in our family. So, but I, so mine is designated COVID vehicle, for lack of a better word. And uh, I wear only what I'm uh, going to wear for that shift. And I take a, some clothing that I'm going to change into when I return home. I pack my own uh, food and I already made a plan that I'm not eating in the, in the space where it's been designated for us because I don't actually think we can social distance and it's not really cleaned in, cleaned in a way that I would like to see done. So I plan where I'm going to eat. I plan what I'm going to eat. I'm going to bring it myself. Um, and that, so I'm owning the things that I touch. Um, I've already got a plan for, you know, when I'm going to take a break because interestingly, it's so quiet now you can actually take breaks where I'm going to take it, where I'm going to feel safe and, and how I'm going to, uh, you know, right now we have a, a system of you actually hang up your mask on a hook, which is actually just a tack on a corkboard um, so that you can reuse it without contaminating yourself. So where are you going to put these things? How are you going to clean your keyboards before and after and your table space before and after? So I'm very much focused on uh, distancing, even distancing, social distancing within the workspace when I take my PP off where I'm going to keep my PPE so that I can reuse it without contaminating myself and how I keep my own environmental space clean with uh, wipes if we have it, or, you know, you take some of the hand sanitizer and you put it on a paper towel or some sort of thing like that, that you clean your area. So those are the things I think about. And then cleaning my stethoscope. I try not to use my stethoscope, but if I do, I, the disposal ones are, I think you can hear their chest better if you put a cup to their chest. I don't find them very useful. They're really hard to hear. Hmm. So I do use mine and I do clean them very thoroughly with a cavi wipe. And then when I'm, I never chart in the room. So I have to remember that. And I do my phone interviews for my history most of the time or not and before I go in, uh, unless of course they're unstable. And then which case you, it's, doesn't matter. You're just going to carry that in your head. You're never going to write anything anyways at that time. And then when at the, den- at the end of the day, I, uh, you know, I got to remember to get rid of everything that I had in worn during work. I put it in my locker, make in a bag so that it doesn't touch maybe other stuff I might have in there. And, uh, and if it's stuff that I'm bringing home to clean, because I, I do use my own personal greens. So I change into fresh uh, clothes uh, you know, properly hand sanitize. I hand sanitize my face and neck as well as my hands before I change out of my scrubs and then do the same afterwards. And c- go home and clean street clothes. Throw my As soon as I get home, I throw my uh, greens in the wash. I shower and change into another set of clean clothing. So it's almost like a ritual, but if you you have to remember the steps to it because there are a lot of things that you wouldn't have normally done. Mm-hmm. And uh, during your shift, Surgical mask sounds like, um, is that, is that fair to say? Every, everybody wears them all the time. The main yeah. reason being, and I even get after people because there's certain people who've, oh, I don't care if I don't get it. I said, I don't care if you get it. I do care if you spread it. Spread it. Right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so uh, yeah, it's interesting too, as well. You would think given that it should be widely known that one of the biggest benefits of wearing a, so- a surgical mask is preventing the spread and that uh, I think it's at least two to three days you're an asymptomatic spreader. And if you're already in an environment where there's COVID, you're very likely, or you're not very likely, you are certainly more likely to catch it there than you are at uh, a grocery store where they actually enforce social distancing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And so I get after people there. It just it did, What sort of is a bit startling for me this far into the outbreak that anybody needs a reminder. So that's a, so... I still do it because I think they do, but I just wish they there was no reminders to be given and that everybody had their mask on all the time. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I don't, I'm losing track of time, but it was, I remember reading the Atul Gawande uh, article in the New Yorker about how, how healthcare providers were protecting themselves. And it was in, uh, was it Taiwan and, and South Korea with, they were religious about wearing surgical masks, gloves, and that wasn't what was going on in North America at the time, no. at least locally. And and yeah. so I remember thinking, I mean, I sent that article to everybody that I knew. And I, I remember even sitting in meetings where people were saying, you know, is that really necessary? How is that going to protect you? And um, and now look at us, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. uh, 
I don't, I don't know. It's it's amazing how the thread is there, but unless you start to feel it personally, mm-hmm. how you don't do it. I, and this is just a, in SARS 2003 in Toronto, where, where everybody literally was petrified of catching this and dying. Uh, not far away in Hamilton, people were just sort of laissez-faire, not were not in some places, not really wearing their PPE properly or even not at all. It was like a, it was amazing to us it was was it what was also amazing that it only stayed in toronto but it was amazing that just outside toronto people didn't see it as a real threat it's i don't know why that is but maybe i'm not sure if it's a good thing or a bad thing it's a it's a bad thing if you're next up (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we're getting to the end Lori. any other nuanced advice about ppe like for example i know our um there's been some anesthesiologists expressing concern about having their necks, for example, not protected well with the current guidelines. Any thoughts towards that? Yeah. You know, your standards seem to reflect what's available. So you don't include in your standard a hood, let's say, if you can't deliver it. Um, <laughs> so I think that uh, a hood, which provides great head and neck cover, is uh for sure in my glow germ test, that plus a face shield and an N5, you virtually never got contaminated. Do you need that? I think the evidence shows that probably you don't need that level of protection, but I can certainly feel, understand how you would feel unprotected uh, if you do a glow germ test and you see this, your neck light up. So what's the answer to that? One, I guess take solace in knowing that most people aren't getting infected and they don't have that available. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it's maybe not zero. It's hard to know what the exact number is, but it's, it's, highly unlikely that you're going to get infected if you have the N95, the face shield, and a bouffant. And you can also tie your gown up higher to reduce that sort of mm. exposure. The other part is in uh, in Saudi Arabia and in the Middle East where they had to intubate MERS patients, uh, they used a face shield. Uh, I think they may have actually had goggles or eye protection as well as an N95 and a Tyvek uh, suit, which provides the equivalent of a hood. But part of what their their ritual post-doffing is that they washed their face and neck, which is not in any kind of guidance that I've seen post-doffing. And I thought that made perfect sense. So either hand sanitize, uh, just watch because I've actually tried this. So if you do put it on your eyelids, it does burn a bit. So you got to keep your eyes closed <laughs> for a while. But uh, if, but you know, and, and if you have, uh, it's probably not as important there. But certainly around your nose and face and mouth and your uh, neck, if you put sanitizer on that, or if you washed it uh, well with soap and water, it would probably go a long way to actually uh, reducing any contamination there to a significant amount. Sort of just like washing your hands, you wash those same areas. If in fact you've done a, you had a difficult intubation, or and there was a lot of uh, perhaps. Uh, challenges with the patient beforehand. You were, I don't know if we should intubate, we should intubate. And there's a lot of things going on. And you felt, you know, after you finally made the decision to intubate, you felt like that's not good enough. I don't, I feel like I'm contaminated. You can do the sanitizing as you described, but then just go take a shower. And uh, then you can, I think really this uh, soap and water is the best defense against this, you know, short of preventing it from being inhaled, which the N95 does. But soap and water is the best defense against contracting this, and you can always have that available to you. So we have ways to adapt. The way to adapt is to uh, consider washing your face and neck as well as your hands after you doff. Mm, Good, great advice. I just thought of another, I heard you mention goggles. Yeah. We didn't really touch on that. Do you are you routinely wearing them like uh, no. just during high risk? Okay. So, you know, I guess everybody's got a fan one way or another. And this comes back to uh, in 2003, we were, had the double double. So we had the face shield and the, either those uh, industrial wraparound gog- uh, glasses, plastic ones, or the goggles. And we could not see. <laughs> Like there was so much fog, you mm. could not see. So when you look at the Chinese social media, you see they either have goggles or facials, but I, it's extremely rare to see the combination of both. And if you talk to people who try to use both, they find that everything fogs. And as soon as things, when you wear the both, as soon as they fog, your hands are up under your shield, adjusting your goggles. You're starting to touch and probably touch your eyes and starting to put yourself at risk just from the number of ways you're making adjustments. So the benefit of, say, uh, glasses, like either glasses you wear or some sort of small sport glasses under a face shield would be that uh, 
we touch our face apparently two to 3,000 times a day, and that includes rubbing your eyes. So if you had some sort of glasses, not goggles and not the big industrial things, under a face shield, at least if you put your hands up to maybe touch your eye, you would hit your glasses first. But mm-hmm. if you combine goggles plus those industrial glasses with a face shield, you're going to get fogging. So mm-hmm. I think that is, uh, you know, especially why are you wearing this? You're, you're probably thinking about intubating or something like that. I, I think it's not a good combination. And if you're going to do something, uh, some people just use the goggles. That's fine. But then you don't, you lose the benefit of uh, coverage of your mask and your face. So my preference, if it's available, is a face shield. If you want to have some additional eye protection underneath that, either your own glasses or some small glasses that you can that you know won't fog underneath that are clear if you don't need glasses. So that when you mm. do take your face shield off or something that you're thinking about touching your eyes, you're going to touch those glasses first. And in many respects, that's the value of the surgical mask is one, it stops transmission and it also stops you from touching your nose and mouth and then, then transmitting it to yourself that way. So I don't know if that answers the question or not, but being- that answered it di- directly. Yeah, no, I appreciate this. Honestly, L- Laurie, I this was a f- amazing conversation. Not, not only did we talk personal protective equipment, but just philosophy, how to uh, how to improve healthcare overall, and it um, it was a, a fantastic conversation. It was a real privilege to have you on the show. Well, Quajo, I'm uh, glad we didn't follow a script <laughs> so, <laughs> and then flowed naturally. So I think uh, that that's great and uh, happy to participate in the future. And uh, let's see how this plays out. Awesome. Thank you so much. And we will definitely be tapping in on your resources. You're full of knowledge. Thank you so much. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, everybody, for listening to our conversation with Lori Mazurik. If you have any comments, please leave them at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, at Quadcast. Thank you to our sponsors, BetterHelp and Audible. Really appreciate the support. Check out our merchandise. Once again, this this money goes to support local charities. See the links uh, on the show notes. Want to thank our team members, you know, social media team, our screener team, our social marketing team. All your contributions mean a lot. We're going to be setting up a newsletter soon. I hope uh, that they'll be enjoyable to you guys. Also, check out our webinars. The feedback has been unreal from that. So uh, stay tuned for more. And thanks, everybody, for listening and stay safe.